Our scripture reading this morning is found in Michael chapter 6, verses 8. In the Red Pew Bible, that's page, uh, page 780. Michael chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus Christ has all power. The miracles of Jesus convince us of that truth. He has power over the physical realm, the natural realm. Three weeks ago, we talked about the fact that Jesus could speak to the wind and the waves and they obey him. Mark chapter 4 and verse 41. Jesus not only has power over the physical, natural world, but he's got power over disease and afflictions that afflict our bodies. He can cause the blind to see, John chapter 9. And he asks us to reflect on the question from a spiritual perspective, am I blind? And do I need him to allow me to be able to see? John chapter 9, verses 40 and 41. Not only does Jesus have power over the natural realm, not only does he have power over our physical maladies and, and, and diseases, Jesus has power over the spiritual world. He can cast out unclean spirits, demons, as we read about last week in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. When you read about the miracles of Jesus, they're partly there to convince us that he really is the Messiah, the Son of God, but they're also there, consider this, to give some dimension and depth to what happened at the cross. Here is somebody who could speak to the storm and it would cease immediately. Here was somebody who could immediately cast out demons with a word. Here is somebody who could speak to blindness, to create a cure on the fly and he never lost a case. Everybody he ever tried to heal was instantly healed. If he could do things like that, then why did he suffer and die on the cross? If he had that kind of power and that kind of ability, why did he die for us? That's a question worth reflecting on because when you read about the miracles and you see all that he was capable of, the fact that he died for you and me means that there's something especially significant, especially meaningful about the cross of Jesus Christ. He died willingly. He died as a sacrifice for you and me. As we continue our study of the miracles of Jesus Christ, open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 2, and we're going to look at the account in verses 1 through 11. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Read with me, if you would, this passage. And again, Jesus entered Capernaum, Mark chapter 2, verse 1, after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And Jesus was preaching the word to them. Then they came to him, verse 3, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And they when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. 
When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, Jesus said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier uh, to, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins, Jesus said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately, the man arose, took up his bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is one of those accounts that's especially touching, especially beautiful in the Gospels. Not just because of what Jesus does, but because of what the friends of this man who is paralyzed do. Friendships are precious and they're valuable. The Bible indicates that that's true. And you think about the logistics of trying to bring someone who is paralyzed to see Jesus in the first century. I don't know what kind of distance they had to travel. Maybe he lived nearby to where Jesus was teaching. Maybe this individual was a city or two away and it was a journey of several miles. But this man who was paralyzed had some friends who loved him and truly cared about him. And when you stop and think about it, it's one thing for me to decide individually that I want to go see Jesus. It's one thing for me individually to decide that I want to pursue the truth and I want to pursue righteousness. It's another thing altogether to involve others in that journey, isn't it? It's another thing to say, let's go see Jesus together. Let's go into his presence one with another because what that does is it slows us down and it causes all kinds of things to have to be accounted for. And so these four individuals, they want their friend to see Jesus and they pick up his bed and they carry him, whatever the distance was. It's a touching thing to stop and think about it. We ought to stop and remember and thank God for the people who have invested in us, who have cared about us, and who have striven in their lives to help bring us closer to God. Maybe it was a parent who cared about you. Maybe it was a teacher Maybe it was an elder. Maybe it was just a friend in the church who really invested in you and cared about you and said, I want to help you to know the Savior better. These four individuals, we don't even know their names. We don't even know the paralyzed man's name. But what a beautiful, what a touching account. And as they bring their friend to Jesus, there are some amazing things that you learn about the Savior in this passage. I'd like to bring six to your attention this morning. As you think about who Jesus is and about his power and abilities, notice these six principles with me. First of all, as you think about people, excuse me, I forgot to mention this, there are four categories. Four categories as we're still introducing. The Bible indicates in this particular passage there is a healer and Jesus is uniquely the healer. He's the one who has the ability to heal. Not only that, but he, there are people who are helpless those who realize they need help, those who realize that they're not going to find salvation without the healer, without the one who can provide. There are also, like these four individuals who bring their friend, there are helpers. 
those who assist the helpless. And in this passage, you also notice that there are some who hinder. Hinderers, those who impede or discourage the helpless. And if you stop and think about it, none of us is the healer, none of us is the Lord. There's only one, but every one of us falls into one of those other three categories. And we need to think about our relationship with the Lord and about our relationship with others in that light. Now, as you look at Jesus, six concepts relating to the the Savior and what we learn about him in this passage. Number one, when you look at Jesus, the Bible indicates that he is approachable, that he is helpful. Look again at the passage in verses one and two. The Bible says that Jesus comes into a house. It appears to be Simon and Andrew's house. If you go back to chapter one, he is in Capernaum and Simon and Andrew have a house there. And that seems to be where Jesus' home base kind of was. And when they realize that Jesus is again in the house, as Mark puts it, many are gathered to him. And Jesus was constantly teaching everywhere he went. He was talking to people about the message of God. He was looking into their faces, looking into their eyes and telling them about things that God wanted them to know. And people just couldn't get enough of it. He was saying things that they had never heard before. And he was teaching in a way that they had never heard before. With authority he was. And so people were gathering from all around. And the Bible indicates that There was such a big crowd in the house that the house was full and even out the front door, there were people standing out in the street or the alleyway and they were trying to get close enough to hear what he had to say. And these friends that bring their paralyzed friend, they realize you can bring those who are sick and those who are helpless and those who are sinners, you can bring people like that to Jesus because he knows what to do. And brothers and sisters and friends, he is still just as approachable today as he was in the first century 2,000 years ago. He is still just as willing to help today as he was in the first century. We need to have that concept, that vision when we talk to people about his will and about his word. The helpless, the lost, we can bring them to Jesus. In Mark 1.37, it indicates that Everyone was looking for him. Jesus was popular and people wanted to be around him. They wanted to hear from him and they wanted to learn from him. He was approachable. In Mark 1 verse 45, the indication is that people were coming from every quarter. There was something about Jesus that was distinctive, that was unique, and it attracted people to him. I believe that the same things that attracted people to Jesus in the first century will attract people to Jesus today. Namely, that he is gracious, that he is merciful, that he is approachable, that he is helpful, and that his words are the words of truth. He has the words of eternal life, John 6, verse 68. Let's not hide him under a bushel, so to speak. As God's people, let's not act like it's not important to bring him up in our conversations with those who need to know about him. He's approachable. And people felt like they could come into his presence and listen to him teach. People need to have that same feeling even today. Secondly, as you look at this particular passage and you look at what the Bible says about Jesus, it tells us that he commends faith that acts. The four men who bring their friend who's paralyzed, 
they get to the house and imagine how frustrating it must have been for them. We can't get in. And I wonder if, you know, maybe they politely tapped some of the people on the shoulder and said, hey, we've got a friend who's paralyzed here and we need him to see Jesus. And I don't know what the people, if that even happened, I don't know what the people said or what reasoning they used. Let's, let's not let the paralyzed man through. Maybe they were just too polite to even tap on the shoulder. But somehow, somebody got the idea that going up on the roof was a great way to get this man to Jesus. And so the Bible says in verses three and four, they go up on the roof and they create basically an inadvertent and unplanned skylight. Simon and Andrew's house. Simon and Andrew already have a house full, assuming it's their house. And whoever this house belongs to, all of a sudden, the roof tiles start being removed. And there's a commotion on the roof. And I don't know if Jesus tried to keep teaching or if he stopped and just waited to see what was happening. But this caused a huge commotion in the house, understandably so. And all of a sudden, as this skylight appears and then they move this paralytic into place and they begin to lower him down into the midst of the crowd. Finally, people would be moving out of the way, I would think. Let's, let's, let's make room for this man. And the Bible says, this is fascinating the way the Bible just points out individual little details about what Jesus was looking at. It says in Mark chapter two, verse five, that Jesus saw their faith. He saw their faith. That's interesting because it doesn't just say he saw the faith of the paralyzed man. He saw the faith of all these individuals. What is faith? Faith is the idea that I need something that only God can provide and I'm going to respond accordingly. I need something that only God has. Only God can give me this blessing. Only God can provide this for me. And faith says, I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to read in his word what he wants me to do and I'm gonna obey. Faith is trust in God's ability to help plus obedience to God's word. And Jesus sees in these four individuals and their friend who's being lowered down to their midst, he sees faith. Faith is not just something that's better felt than told. Faith is real and it's vibrant and it's observable. It's observable. Jesus saw it lowering this man down to the midst of the crowd. James 2 verse 26 reminds us that faith, if it has no works, is dead. We are justified by works and not by faith only, that passage indicates. Show me, if you believe in God, if you serve him, if you love him, if you trust him, if you're submitting to his word, show me that that's how you wanna live. Show me that that's what you're all about. Faith is visible, it's observable, because faith always incorporates action, obedience, just like these individuals lowering their friend through the roof. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse six, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Impossible to please him without trusting his ability. I need something from God and going to him in obedient submission to his word. And what I learn about Jesus from this passage, among many other things, is that Jesus commends a faith that acts, that obeys. You know, there may be some of us who really believe some things about 
the word. We believe some things about Jesus Christ. We believe some things about the nature of truth. And yet we haven't done anything about those. We haven't made the changes in our lives that need to be changed. My challenge to you this morning is this. Jesus commends a faith that acts. Do what you know is the right thing to do. Do what you know is true. Do what you know the Lord wants you to do. What are you waiting for? Why are you lingering? Why are you refusing to go to the one who can heal and can help and can bless? What do you learn about Jesus in this passage? Number three, Jesus considers sin to be our greatest problem. So this man who's paralyzed obviously has physical problems that need to be cured Jesus looks at this man as he's lowered into the midst of the crowd. And in Mark chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Son, get up and walk. No, that's not what he says. As this man who is paralyzed, and I don't know how he came to be in that condition, the Bible doesn't indicate. But this man who is paralyzed and wants nothing more than to walk and to be able to stand up and to be able to use his arms and his legs... Jesus says to him, first and foremost, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Brothers and sisters and friends, listen to the Lord. The greatest problem that we will ever face is the problem of sin. Because sin is a problem that we carry with us, not just in this world, but we carry it with us into the next Every other malady or problem that we ever face, we leave behind when we die. But sin, you don't. Sin clings to us. It sticks to us. It abides with us. And the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. Romans 6, verse 23. And so, the Bible gives passages like Isaiah 1, verse 18. Though your sins are as scarlet, God will make them as white as snow. Why is God so concerned about sin? Because God knows sin abides with us. It stays with us even when we leave this world. And sin needs to be forgiven. It needs to be cleansed. It's a priority with Jesus. It's a priority with our Heavenly Father. It ought to be something that we're concerned about. Son, your sins are forgiven. And the people that as you think about, we're standing around. I wonder if they kind of looked at this guy. He's a paralytic. He hasn't gotten off that bed in who knows how long. What kind of sins could he be capable of? What kind of things has he done that have displeased the Lord? Another thing worthy of contemplation is this. Even when we're unable to move, even when we're like this man, we can still be guilty of sin. Because sin is not just what we do with our physical bodies. Sin is something that happens in our hearts and our minds. Our attitudes can be displeasing to God. And this man who was paralyzed was laying there on the mat and what he needed even before Jesus said, arise, take up your bed and walk, he needed cleansing. He needed his sins to be forgiven. In Psalm chapter 19, verse 14, the psalmist said as a prayer, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock, my strength, and my redeemer. Peter said to Simon the sorcerer, repent and pray if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven. The sins that we may need forgiven in our lives 
may relate just as much to our thoughts and our attitudes as they do to what we've done with our bodies. Jesus said sin is the greatest problem that people face. It's still the greatest problem that people face even today. Next, what do you learn about Jesus? The scripture indicates that he has power to forgive. The fact that he says, son, your sins are forgiven, that causes a stir because the Jews are around, especially the scribes, and they're listening to Jesus' teaching. They want to kind of sign off on what he's saying. Is he really, is he towing the party line? Is he saying what we would say about God's word? And when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, they start grumbling and talking and murmuring and reasoning in their hearts. Who is this man that forgives sin? Who can forgive but God alone? They recognize that forgiveness, that cleansing of sin is not something that people can just say arbitrarily. You can't just say your sins are forgiven and make it true in God's sight. That doesn't work. Who can do this except God alone? And even more offensive in their minds was this. You ever bought a car and the salesman who's selling you the car plays this game with you? You're sitting in the room and you're negotiating and the salesman will say, okay, I, I, I'm just, this is such a good deal you're asking for, I'm gonna have to go talk to my manager. And he gets up and he takes the documents and he goes away and he disappears for five, 10, 15 minutes like he's really doing some heavy negotiating, you know? And then he comes back and he sits down and he says, okay, I've, I've got permission now from my manager. He, he really ground his teeth, but you can have the car for this price, right? Have to go ask permission. Jesus didn't have to do that when he said your sins are forgiven. Jesus didn't have to go and ask for permission when he said your sins are forgiven you. Jesus didn't have to have power of attorney. He is God. He is divine. And therefore when he said your sins are forgiven, it's true. Immediately it's true. And one of the things about forgiveness of sins is this as well. Forgiveness of sins does not change anything visible about me. When my sins are forgiven, you know, my, 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 my physical appearance does not change. When my sins are forgiven, there's not like a tingling in the back of my neck or anything like that or on, the, on, on my arms on my hair, hair on my arms don't stand up. Those kinds of things don't happen just because you receive forgiveness of sins. And so the question is, well, did it really happen? When Jesus says your sins are forgiven, they are forgiven because he has that power. And in Mark chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, this miracle in particular, it is intended to prove one point. When Jesus tells this man to rise, take up his bed and walk, it is to prove that what he said to the man previously was true. And if Jesus tells anybody, your sins are forgiven, it's true. Whether anybody else believes it or not, it's true. Sometimes people struggle with, has God forgiven me? Has God really done what he said he would do? This miracle is one that we ought to spend some time contemplating and thinking about. Jesus does this miracle so that everybody may know that he has power to forgive sins. You know, for years people have wondered and puzzled about the thief on the cross in Luke chapter 23, verse 43, when Jesus says, assuredly I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. And that thief on the cross was forgiven. How did Jesus do that? He had the power to do that. If Jesus said to you while he was here on earth, your sins are forgiven, this miracle proves that what he's saying is true. He has the power to forgive, the power to cleanse. And by the way, when he says, so that you may know that I have this power, that harkens back to the book of Exodus when Moses was standing before Pharaoh 
And Moses was going to do those signs, those plagues on the land of Egypt. And God said in every case, I'm doing this, Pharaoh, so that you may know that I am the Lord. So that you may know that my words have weight, that my words are true. Miracles confirm the word. And you can put stock in what the word of God says to you because these miracles genuinely happened. What do you learn about Jesus based on this passage? You learn that he could see it in men's hearts. The Pharisees and the scribes, they're sitting there and they're reasoning in their hearts, who can forgive sins but God alone? And the Bible says in Mark chapter two, verse eight, that Jesus perceived in his spirit that they questioned these things among themselves. You know, it's interesting to stop and think about. It would have been kind of intimidating, I would think, to be around Jesus because he can look into your soul He can look into your heart and he can see what you're thinking in real time. Really, there are a couple of miracles that take place in this particular passage. And one of them is the fact that Jesus, he could read their minds. He could perceive what they were thinking about without them even having to tell him. In John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, the Bible indicates that Jesus didn't need people to tell them what was going on inside. Jesus knew. He could see And brothers and sisters and friends, he can still see into our hearts. He can still see into our minds. He still knows what we're thinking in real time, constantly. He still can perceive the thoughts and the intents of our heart. Proverbs 15 verse 3 tells us, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch over the evil and the good. Jesus Christ knows. Total information awareness. But it's wonderful that he's gracious, that he's merciful, and that he wants to help if we'll just let him, if we'll just obey and submit to his will. Then you learn this about Jesus. He has power to heal. The Bible says in Mark chapter 2, verse 10 and through 12, that he says to this man, arise, take up your bed and walk. And in verse 12, immediately the man arose, took up the bed and went out in the presence of them all. Have you ever stopped to think about how these miracles must have happened? This guy, if he's paralyzed, his muscles have atrophied. He hasn't used his arms and legs in who knows how long, maybe not ever. And Jesus says, stand up and walk. And there's no question, there's no hesitation. This man gets up and he picks up his bed. He's got strength and he walks out. Jesus doesn't just give this man the ability to stand up and walk. He throws in muscle tone. Things that a lot of us work a long time to build and it very quickly goes away if you don't use it. But Jesus, he just by a word, this man stands up and he's got muscle and he's got tone and he's able to walk out and people are amazed, the Bible says. That's the reaction. It tells you in verse 12, They were amazed, all of them, and glorified God. And they said, we never saw anything like this. I believe that the way that this man was healed, I believe we ought to directly relate it to the way that Jesus forgives. Jesus doesn't just forgive partially. He doesn't just forgive just a little bit. He doesn't just forgive grudgingly. When Jesus says your sins are forgiven, it's like he says, take up your bed and walk. And immediately there is full restoration, immediately there is full cleansing, immediately there is full health and wholeness. 
And so it is with the forgiveness that God provides. Jesus has the power to forgive sins and he proved it by healing this man. We ought to put our trust and our confidence in a savior like that. Because you can search this world far and wide. You can search the annals of history. You will never find anybody who is able to do what Jesus can do. You'll never find anybody who can bring the hope that Jesus can bring. And so my question to you this morning is this, do you believe that you're helpless, that you're lost in sin? Do you believe that you need the cleansing that only Jesus can provide? If you do, put your trust in him, repent of your sin, confess that he is the son of God and be baptized. Be immersed in water for the remission of your sins. It's at the point of baptism that we come into contact with the saving blood of Jesus Christ. If you need to respond to heaven's invitation this morning, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?